I'm Skip Papersley with an important news bulletin. Booked episodes available everywhere. Listen to Booked on iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast, Podcast.com, The Zoom Marketplace, and BookedPodcast.com. You can even hear Booked episodes playing through the conference room door of James Patterson's lawyer's office. This has been Skip Papersley reminding you where you can find episodes of Booked. Thank you. Where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, this episode we'll be reviewing the book Rail Sea by China Mieville. China is the author of King Rat, Perdido Street Station, The Scar, Iron Council, Looking for Jake, a collection of short stories, and Unlundun, his New York Times best selling book for young readers. He lives and works in London and has won more awards than I care to read. All right, and here's the. Uh synopsis that we pulled off of Amazon for Railsea. On board the Moltrain Meads, Sham Yesap Surap watches in awe as he witnesses his first moldy warp hunt. The giant mole bursting from the earth, the harpoonists targeting their prey, the battle resulting in one's death and the other's glory. But no matter how spectacular it is, Sham can't shake the sense that there is more to life than traveling the endless rails of the Rail Sea. Even if his captain can think only of the hunt for the ivory-colored mole she's been chasing since it took her arm all those years ago. When they come across a wrecked train, at first it's a welcome distraction. But what Sham finds in the derelict, a series of pictures hinting at something somewhere that should be impossible, leads to considerably more than they he bargained for. Soon he's hunted on all sides by pirates, trains, folk, monsters, and salvage scrabblers. And it might not be just Sham's life that's about to change. It could be the whole of the rail sea. That is a mouthful. That was quite a bit. You did a very nice job there. <laughs> All right. So for anybody that didn't follow um, follow along with with a lot of that, it uh, takes place in the uh, – Rob and I both decided before the show that it is definitely our planet, and uh, but it takes place in the way, 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 way future. So I don't know, a thousand plus years from now. Um, and it's uh, – the entire world is covered in, in train tracks, um, crisscrossing everywhere, um, switches. Everything is done by train because nobody will touch the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially like where there would be ocean or water instead of, of you know, boats, it's, it's train tracks. It's kind of weird, but like that's essentially it. And there is – well, I guess there is parts of the, the world that, you know – our land and the, you know, are inhabited by people, but it seems like the areas that you would consider originally would have been oceans. And instead is this, uh, train tracks over, over ground that, um, people are too afraid to, to step on or walk on because of gigantic, dangerous, weird animals. Yeah. It's treated like if you've touched the ground, like that's it for you. And, uh, there are, um, animals that uh, for the most part, at least throughout the book where animals we're familiar with, but are just, just incredible proportion. Um, just for example, there's an owl, um, at one point in the story that's big enough to lift a train car off the ground. And to give you an idea of, of what these, uh, these, uh, rail sea travelers, um, have to deal with, but it seems like the really big deal is moles, giant moles that are called moldy warps. Yeah. So, yeah, it's essentially 
just kind of this, we'll get into a little bit with our quotes, but all the animals are just really ravenous and will attack practically anything. And like Olivia said, they're just gigantic. And, and, um, so it's dangerous. The whole thing is just, it just all boils down to the fact that it's dangerous on the rail sea. And, um, and the characters that we're seeing most of the time, even though there are some, some scenes in the book where, you know, we're on land, um, the majority of the book takes place on the rail sea on one of these like uh, mole hunting trains that n- the main character uh, works on. And, um, and so, yeah, the most, the majority of what we're reading is this big, dangerous um, um, ocean of rails. So our protagonist, Sham, yes, Apsurap, who for the rest of this episode will be known only as Sham. We, we, the story starts and we're seeing this uh, you know, kind of through his eyes. It, it's There's an omnipotent narrator that we'll also touch on later. But um, So we're seeing this as Sham is seeing the rail sea. He's on his first um, voyage. His, uh, his extended family has uh, gotten him a gig as the um, assistant to the doctor on the train. So he's uh, hopefully one day will become a, a doctor on the rail sea. And he's uh, not really what he wants to do. And he's not really familiar with what's going on. So we kind of learn about it as, as Sham does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the big characters. Sham's obviously our main character. Um, the captain of the train that he works on uh, is a woman named Captain, what did you say, Naffy? Naffy, yeah. Naffy. Um, and, and all right, so <clears throat> this is where it kicks into kind of the parallels. Uh, the book is kind of described as like a, either just like a, an adaptation of, or I've seen it referred to as a loving tribute to, Moby Dick, um, where, you know, there was a captain who had lost a limb to a whale and was chasing the whale. It's the whole thing. Everybody knows what Moby Dick is. Um, so this is kind of a similar situation. A lot of, of train captains have what are called philosophies, and philosophies are essentially um, the thing that they obsess after and they chase after. So in her case, it's a giant – it's described as different colors, but like a giant – basically a big white mole – um, and by giant, we mean like, I don't know how to, how to even describe how big it is, but bigger than an entire train, like mm-hmm. really, really big. Um, some of the other characters that appear a little later in the story, but are kind of, uh, important to where the story goes are, uh, a brother and a sister, um, Darrow and Caldera Shroke. Um, and they, uh, eventually will be on a journey to find what their parents were searching for when they lost their lives on the rail sea. Um, do you want to talk about the best character in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, another one of the weird animals, I guess. There's not just bats that that uh, come out at night to eat bugs and stuff. There's day bats, and uh, along his travels, Sham, uh, there's a there's a day bat that is injured, and instead of just tossing it off to the the animals of the rail sea, he keeps it and nurses it back to health. And it becomes kind of his pet or companion, and it's he names it very creatively Daby the Daybat. Best character in the whole in the whole book. <laughs> Some people can throw in animals just kind of arbitrarily for for cuteness or for whatever you know companionship of a character, but like Daby actually kind of plays a, a decent role in in making things happen and stuff at certain points. So yeah, Daby was kind of a kick ass character. There's kind of the rest of the story. Um, at a certain point, Sham, because he's a uh, young and, and, you know, kind of smaller, 
um, is asked. They find this train that, that's been derailed, destroyed, whatever, and um, they're trying to get into it to see if there's, a, you know, anything that they can use from the train, and he's the only one that can fit through the cracks and crevices to get inside, and what he discovers is um, a, a memory card, an actual memory card from a camera, from, you know, uh, kind you'd use now, and uh, on it, it turns out there are some pictures that imply that the rail sea may actually have a beginning somewhere, which is something that nobody knows because it's all like a big loopy mess. So nobody knows that there's this, it's a picture of one solid rail kind of going off into the, into the horizon. Um, so this is something that's not supposed to happen. It's the impossible. So uh, Sham uh, decides that he needs to find the family of the captain who took this picture to... Uh, to let them know, you know, where, where their father ended up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that's kind of really where the all the conflict takes place because um, I think, and it was kind of hinted at in the in the synopsis that essentially the information that he finds on this card is is incredibly valuable to both governments and pirates, and so um, he gets chased after by pretty much everybody, and and. And so uh, the conflict is born from this card, but it's also his inspiration to like finally do something that he wants to in his life instead of just kind of going along with jobs and stuff that uh, that his family got him that he's not too interested in. So it's really the point where everything in the story kicks off. I think it's about all we can do about stories, you know, specifics without getting too um, too spoilery. So. Uh, um this whole world that he created and this kind of concept that the, you know, that there's this, you know, ocean of land that these people travel on is just absolutely fascinating that, uh, that came up with this grand, great concept. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad that we're not spoiling it because like we kind of we would have a lot more to talk about if we could talk about what happened at the end. So, uh, um, yeah, Livius is right. The, especially the way it's introduced to you, it's just so foreign and, and like upside down that, yeah, it's really interesting to see where he takes it and everything. So um, this is my second um, exposure to, to China's work. And uh, it was the same thing with the other book. I mean, you know, concepts bigger than my little brain can come up with, you know, I mean, just these big worlds where something is so vastly different. And, and he does that, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily disagreeing with what you just said. I thought it was really muddy in the beginning till it started to take shape what was going on. But um, I mean, once it got going and you kind of understand the scope of, of his world, it's really, really impressive creation. Yeah, there is a learning. Yeah, there's definitely a learning curve. I mean, the first and I don't and, and at the risk of, of turning people off a little bit to the book, the first I'd say quarter of the book is like it's work, you know in my opinion it takes a lot of work to get to the point where like the story finally kicks in and you're 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 moving along at a solid pace and you're you're comfortable with the read yeah it it takes a while to get going and and through those first few chapters i mean i I literally couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on i mean i kept thinking maybe they're on a boat but they're not on a boat i just didn't couldn't get it why they couldn't touch the ground why i mean just none of it made any sense to me but um you know, when you step back and look at it afterwards, it's again. I just can't express enough how impressive the world that that he made was. So kudos to him for that. Yeah, and part of that is um, is um, I mean, not only is he creating this kind of futuristic world that's way different than anything we could conceive of, um, he does a lot of weird. He takes a lot of liberties with language, and um, <clears throat> I got a couple of examples that I'm not going to use as quotes later. So 
Um, like sometimes it'll just be, I mean, as simple as uh, him combining two words together, like like this sentence. He walked with Caldera and Darrow through their house. It was so rambling and tumble down, he called it in his head, ramble down. So like it, it, the, the story's a lot like that. When, when what someone's thinking or saying doesn't fit exactly what they're trying to get across, they just kind of like mash words together to make it, you know, more specifically what they're doing or talking about. Yeah, and I think whenever you jump, you know, like I said, there's no timeline for us to really gauge, but, you know, whatever, 500, 1,000 years into the future. I mean, long enough ago that, you know, what we do now is a, a distant memory. Um, or for most, I mean, not even a memory at all. Like, they're not really clear, it seems, on, like, where they came from. But, um, yeah, I would imagine that language would, would mutate a little bit. And I thought that he did that really well, too. Yeah, they call doctors sawbones. Instead of doctors. So, but yeah, a lot of that was done, was done very, very well. Yeah, it's, it, it fits well. I mean, it, it feels right. Um, and aside from, yeah, like that kind of learning curve at the beginning of trying to figure out what the hell's going on and what the meanings of things are. Um, this, the world is, yeah, it's, it's really well done. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the story. Here's where I think that, that Rob and I might split off a little bit on, uh, on, uh, on the story. So as good of a job as he does with creating the setting, so this whole world that we talked about, which is, I mean, for setting, it plays the, the rail sea itself. So the, the world they live in plays a, you know, central, it's a character in the book. I mean, you can't call it anything but, but for simplicity's sake, you know, we'll, we'll refer to it as the setting. As great as the setting was, the story, in my opinion, was just hugely disappointing. See, I didn't get that. I um, once I got into a well, I, I kind of did in certain places. It's gonna be difficult to say because we're not spoiling this, but like, I felt that the ending was a little bit disappointing. It could have gone bigger or in a different direction. I think more for me, the 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 objections I have are more stylistic than like story based. I think the story, I mean, was solid enough, as solid as any other story I've read recently. My uh, my disappointment came from I think that. You know, one of the things we want when we're reading about characters is, is to care about what happens to them. I mean, it's why I read books and, you know, and I, I couldn't I couldn't find myself caring one bit what happened to Sham or the captain or the Shrokes or like I said, I like the bat. So, eh, OK, you know, but I just couldn't. And in the bat, you know, it's, I say it almost jokingly. The bat parts were actually written pretty well and it was a likable, cute animal in the, you know, in the scope of things. But. I just couldn't like the story just wasn't interesting to me at all. I mean, like I said, and it's, it's unfortunate because once I got through, as Rob said, the first 20% or so where I feel like I, I really get the rail sea, you know, I was looking forward to a good story and it just, it never delivered. All right. So let's run it down character by character. Um, and maybe I'll, maybe this will turn me around a little bit. Cause as you were saying that I was thinking about this more. So sham as a character in the beginning, he's kind of a little wiener who's just kind of doing what he's told. Um, but he's our main character, and as the story develops, he really evolves into another person. So I, I dug the the evolving uh, that that took place and everything. I'd say of all the characters in the book, his was the one that I could most care about. What do you think? Um, I couldn't I couldn't care about him at all. I just couldn't. I, he just it's like he seemed like his direction changed with with so he evolved, and and let's not. Let's talk about China for a second. The guy can very obviously craft a story. It had all of the elements of a story. It had the evolution of your character. It had a, it had a conflict. It had all of the things. If you look at like the five or six bullet points on what you need in a story, they were all there. 
Well, but I mean, that's, you know, and I'm, I'm saying that in a good way. I just couldn't, he couldn't get me to be interested in what was going on with any of these people. Sham was kind of whiny in the beginning. And then like his turnaround came, there, there just nothing happened to cause that turnaround. He went from, I'm the kind of this, this wussy kid, which is fine because that's how he grew up. There was nothing that happened that turned him around. He just kind of decided he wanted to help these other people. And then all of a sudden he becomes like this brave little bastard in, in some cases. And I just honestly wasn't, just wasn't buying it. Hmm. All right. What about captain Naffy? So captain Naffy's story is that, you know, she's the, the captain of this train, um, who's, who's chasing her philosophy quote unquote. And the philosophy is she's chasing after this giant mole. Um, thoughts on cat, the captain. Um, well, I, I never read Moby Dick, but as you said, I'm pretty sure everyone's kind of familiar with it. And I understand it being a tribute to, and I guess because you're kind of spinning it around, it's like a bizarro Moby Dick, you know, of what would happen. But her character came off as flat, and that could be just because there was no, there was never any interaction with the captain. The captain's, you know, one and two lines here and there. I mean, you just never really, you never really got to know the captain. You know the captain's story is Mocker Jack, got her arm at some point and now she wants to get mocker jack back but i mean other than a, a brief interaction that she had where she was kind to sham um you know 30 percent of the way into the book that's all we saw the captain for see my thoughts on the captain are um at the beginning i was like all right you know this is the the gung-ho balls out you know rough you know captain type who is on a mission of vengeance and everything but there's this point where there's like a twist you learn a little different thing about the captain, and after that, the way the captain act acts really changes. So it's a it's a it's an interesting look at the morality of of the character. So I thought like that little like kind of wicked twist was kind of made me like her a little bit more. You know, it's odd because I I have to agree that the captain became a little bit interesting after that, <laughs> but still kind um, of a like a background character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, th- I thought, and again, we can't give it away, but I was like, oh, well, this is kind of interesting. Let's see where this goes. And then I just completely lost interest again. <laughs> and the Shrokes. So the thing about the Shrokes is, uh, like we said, their parents died, you know, on the rail sea, and they, you know, had been missing for a while, and they eventually found out how, thanks to Sham. And then after that, they're kind of spurned into motion to kind of, I guess, pick up where the parents left off, almost. So that's all cool and everything, but there's... Like Livia said, there's really no emotion behind it. And I think that if anything was lacking in any of these characters is there's, I mean, there's definitely a lot of motivation, but not a lot of emotion, even at some points where there could have been romantic, uh, you know, like a kind of romantic elements weaved into the story or woven because that's an actual word. Um, <laughs> God damn it. I read books. Uh, <laughs> it's like he just kind of balked at it. Like it wasn't important enough to go that far i guess the thought i kept having um from about halfway into the book toward till the end and i i literally couldn't go 10 pages without thinking this is and again i've never put anything together this scope so i i might be right about how it happened so he had this grand design for the rail sea and he's like this is really terrific i have this great idea and i can picture these you know like warring trains going after one another and we'll totally pretend it's the ocean. We'll create these giant things that are like whales, but they're, I don't know, moles. Moles would be great, you know? So he's got this wonderful idea. 
And then, like, as an afterthought, he's like, oh, I actually have to plug a story of some characters in here. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much, like, how am I, I'm trying to put this together in a way that it'll make sense. I think he came up with a concept for the rail seat and tried to force a story into it versus coming up with a story that had the backdrop of the rail seat. Yeah, I could see that. I'm trying to think of other books that we really liked. And, um, like, I go back to Strangeness in the Proportion most mostly because it's a fantastic book, but also because we haven't mentioned it in a while. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, the thing is, like, you were right there with Simon Meeks and everything that was going on with Simon. You cared what happened and, like, you felt mm-hmm. for him and, like, you were rooting for him to get what he wanted and stuff. And, and that's what made that, you know, that's a big part of what made that book so great was that you know he he sold you on that character i'll do another one that we didn't necessarily review on the show but comes up a lot is um the raw shark texts again in that i would imagine stephen hall came up with this concept of a conceptual shark so he kind of the same along the same lines as what happened what i i think was going on in, in china mieville's mind when he was coming up with this but he actually managed to make an engaging story where you cared about every character in that mm-hmm. book, you even cared about the um, the ex girlfriend that's dead. You cared about a dead character in that book that doesn't actually <laughs> make an appearance in the now in that book. You know, so I think that <clears throat> he put together his great things. The city in the city, which is the other book I read him again, has a wonderfully big concept that's just genius. But I actually cared about what happened at least the the protagonist in that book, and in this one, I just couldn't find myself caring about anybody's storyline. There it is. So getting away from um, the the characters and the story kind of, I want to go a little bit into like mechanics uh, of things that that were significant enough that they made me think about it during the story, which usually is not a good thing unless it's like really clever and and enhances the story. In this case, I don't think it did. Um, I don't know if you want to call it metafiction or, or kind of just like, you know, breaking the fourth wall. There's definitely points where, all right, so... The story is primarily told, and I did my my extensive Wikipedia research right before we, we started this. Uh, it's told, I guess, what would be considered a third-person subjective, where it's narrated by a third person, um, but it's basically looking through the perspective of just one character instead of like an, you know, an omniscient where you're looking at everything from any perspective that you want. Um, at certain points, though, the narrator just straight up talks directly to the reader and like in a way where it's conversational where you're saying, Hey, shouldn't we be doing this? Well, no, I don't think this is the right time to do this. Like that type of stuff actually just shows up in the story. And it's not as if it's something that's consistent throughout. It happens not until maybe two thirds of the way through the book, maybe give or take, you know, a little bit. And it just kind of happens at one point. I mean, and, and in the context of the moment, it makes sense. But the fact that it's so inconsistent and it shows up so late was was a little bit, it, I guess it threw me off. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. And everything you said is spot on there. It doesn't show up until, you know, two thirds of the way into the book. Um, it's distracting. It was unimportant in most cases. Um, I you talk a little bit about the and symbol, but that's the only time I actually thought that that little aside was worth something to the book. And it was more explaining to us, the reader, why it was being used. 
Um, the rest of it was uh, was just, it was kind of painful in parts. It wasn't quite as bad as when it happened that one time in one Q84, like 83% of the way. <laughs> and you remember that? At least this started and was repetitive and it wasn't like mid-chapter. So they were like little like interlude chapters that start popping up. Right, um, yeah. Another thing about just story uh, chapter structure mechanics or whatever you want to call it is um, the Shrokes are introduced to us halfway into the book. I think when we actually meet them is pretty close to 50%. Um, and then they start getting their own chapters, which I also thought is weird. And I think is um, for me as a reader, it's, it's kind of like a hard twist. Like you have these three things that are going on. So you've got champ, you've got the boat he's on. Okay. And that group of people, and then you've got the stroke. So at a certain point, sham is separated from his boat. So I'm okay. We've been with the boat from the beginning. We've been with Sham from the beginning. Can so we say okay train with... instead of boat? Yes, we can say train because it's probably a train. So <laughs> we've got his train. We've got him. So when those narratives split off and cover both of them, very comfortable with it as a reader because I've been with both of them. So when they, you know, diverge because of circumstances, like that's cool. But now you've got these other chapters that are just being thrown in that are the strokes. And again, I just didn't care about him, but it was, uh, I suppose that to me, the right way would have been is to introduce the strokes earlier on in the story and let us follow what they're doing and then have them meet with these other two important groups as we'll call them, you know, for the sake of this conversation. And here is exactly word for word, how China decides to, to make this transition from showing you everything, uh, from the perspective of, of sham to, to kind of mixing it up, which um, looking at it now, it's about, it's chapter 42 out of how many chapters are there? Mm-hmm. Um, chapter 42 out of chapter, out of 86 chapters, so about halfway through. And this is how he makes that transition. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit at the end of chapter 42. And I, I guess to kind of tell you what happens, there's something significant that happens to Sham um, that makes it so that we typically wouldn't be able to see what's going on with him. Um, and so this is what China does. And this is one of those examples of he's almost kind of just talking directly to you. He says, what should the story do when the primary window through which we view it is shuttered? We might say it should look through another window. That is to say, follow other rails, see through other eyes. And that's basically his way of saying, hey, guys, guess what? We're not looking at Sham's life anymore. We're going on to other places. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying, though? Like, at that point, I understood if it was the Meads and Sham. Right, but now that you're throwing in these strokes. Yeah, it's just, it, it just kind of jarring as a reader. And not jarring, I mean, whatever. I'm not, you know. <laughs> you're it, emotionally it just, damaged Yeah, I'm not it. emotionally scarred by it. I just kind of consider it poor choice. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just kind of the fact that it happens so far into the book after. Okay, so now you've you've kind of tr- done this uphill battle of, of kind of getting comfortable with the story and, and you know, that's 20, 25% of the way in. And then like another 20, 20, 25% of the way in, you have this kind of jarring shift of perspective. And it was just an odd choice. Like Livia said, it could very easily have just been, you know, he could have introduced the, the, I almost said the dokes. <laughs> he could have introduced the strokes earlier on, even if it was just um, because the, the train that the parents were on is, is kind of near the beginning of the book. So like he could have flashed back to something that was going on with the stroke parents that had the, 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 the children involved too, or something. There was options that he had and he just didn't take them. Yeah. He opted to do a dream sequence in a book. That's already so weird that you don't need a dream sequence. 
<laughs> that's a very good point. All right, so that's that's where we're at with with mechanics of storytelling. So if you haven't gotten it yet, didn't like it. But I will say this about the guy. He's a very, very talented writer. And when I say that is I obviously had issues with the story, but within sentence structure and ideas and communicating thoughts, he does very, very well. Um, as an example, and this kind of plays a little bit on uh, a little bit into what Rob was saying earlier, and we're going to start doing quotes here. Um, you know, we're... Sham has the the thought process to mix two words together. There are a couple of times where, and this is very early in the book, this is 8% into the book, um, where he's still kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And there are a couple of examples of this. This is one of my favorites. We need some R&R. It was not long ago he had not known what those R's bites stand for. Perhaps bored women and men, he thought, needed rice and remembrance, rollers and restitution, rhyme and reason. I really like the way that that he describes stuff. And he described the thought processes of people as well. Um, this was towards the very beginning. I think this is like maybe in four, four chapters in or so. Just a quick line about um, Sham was an assistant to a doctor named Fremlo, uh, and he was not a very good assistant. And this is uh, this is what this is what they had to say about it. Fremlo tested him on beginner medicine, at which Sham performed so consistently badly, the doctor was almost more impressed than irritated. That's just like I said. It's a it's a great example of of he can write and and write a witty sentence or, or a good description and just his story storytelling skills need a little bit of work. There were times Sham felt when the captains regretted there being only two types of limb they could lose to their obsessions. On the whole, you were a leg person or an arm person. Had one a tail to lose, a pair of prehensile tentacles, a wing or two, it would increase the possibilities for those vivid scars of philosophizing. All right. Really quickly, Truce always nodded, he always had, including at silences, as if it were imperative that he and the world be in accord about everything, including nothing. There's a scene where uh, Sham is at a... He's in a, a city on one of the previously mentioned islands where, you know, there's actually people inhabiting it that aren't on the rail sea. And uh, Manahiki is uh, is one of these cities, and they have their own navy, which is a train navy. <laughs> so Manahiki, <laughs> sorry, you wonder why I keep saying boat. Uh, Manahiki naval officers lounged in uniform, half on duty, half on display, half flirting with passersby. Yes, the maths were correct. Such swagger could only be made up of three halves. Here's a quick one. So Sham finds a device that's going to help the captain uh, chase uh, her her giant mole, Mocker Jack. And uh, this is her thoughts, her kind of quick conversation with him about it. This might be of use, true, Surap, she said at last. He swallowed. It's a possibility, she said, to be pursued. She stared into space. Sham could almost see the train of her mind grinding over plan rails. That was kind of cute. Clever way of, 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 of just saying something that usually you would say in a very mundane way. Um, here's a great description of something that we're all pretty familiar with. Um, one of the things they talk a lot, the, the other job that you can have um, on a train is a salvage person which means basically you're going around picking up scrap and old stuff that can be used and resold. But one of the things that you get a lot of money for is basically our salvage. So stuff from, you know, now or the near future. And uh, at this point, um, Sham runs into somebody who's created a piece of art, basically, with uh, discarded stuff from our 
time. He'd seen a demonstration of one once at a fair at Stregai, a show of restored findings. Hooked up to chuggering generators, a whining thing like a needy animal prince issuing stupid orders, a fax machine. An ancient screen on which enthusiastic, badly drawn figures hit each other, a video game, and one of these white things used to clean ancients' clothes. Here's a quick one. A battle scene. The naval train fired. Now that, that was an explosion. A whole mountain of boom grew out of nothing. The terralesh swayed, seemed to gust on a shockwave. Here came a war train. All right, here's another quick one from me. So uh, uh, it's a weird scene where they had seen, uh, uh, the Shrokes, I believe, had seen, I guess, what they were calling in the book angels, which is just so hard to explain. I'm not even going to try. And um, at one point, <clears throat> they had seen an angel, and, and, and this is kind of they're talking about it after the point, after the fact. Uh, that, said Caldera at last, was a bit of an anticlimax. You disappointed, Darrow said. Hardly, just not used to seeing things that ain't trying to kill me. Oh, Darrow muttered, give it a minute. Um, this one requires just a little bit of setup, so something bad happens. <laughs> and this is um, uh, one of the people on the meads says, What do we do? Things couldn't get any weirder. So this is back to the narrator now. It would have been simply rude for reality not to respond to a challenge like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. That might be one of my favorite lines in the whole book. Yeah, actually, that's uh, that's the one. Livius and I had the same one marked down. Here's my uh, my last one. I'm actually going to cut this down a little bit. Um, we're just talking about the rail sea at this point. If there are no wheels percussing the iron road, all human life would wink instantly out because such noises are the snoring, the sleep breathing of a rail sea world, and it is the rails that dream us. We do not dream the rails. Yeah, that was, that's just, that's probably the best example of, of his writing. I think that's just a fantastic quote to probably end on. So those are our quotes, but uh, there's one other thing I have highlighted that I want to mention. Um, we talked to, Livius mentioned it va uh, vaguely earlier, and I wanted to go a little bit more into it. And this kind of has to do with the way that he kind of hacks words up and, and does things his own way. He uses the ampersand a lot throughout the book as the word and. Um, without really explaining it. And the actual explanation comes uh, just under halfway through the book with this paragraph right here. What word better could there be to symbolize the rail sea that connects and separates all lands than and itself? And and is the ampersand in quotes. Where else does the rail sea take us but to this place and that one and that one and that one and so on? And what better embodies in the sweep of the pen the recurved motion of trains then and and every time i said and just now is the ampersand kind of hard to read the ampersand out loud isn't it yeah because i i mean trip over it right because <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> yeah otherwise it would be uh ampersand that one ampersand that one ampersand that one <laughs> no what i mean is when you're reading it were you stumbling on it versus the word and because i found myself when i was reading out loud when i was reading the book it was fine but every time i said and in one of the quotes i found myself kind of Trying not to trip on it. Uh, I didn't. I, it just looked more weird than it than it actually like. It didn't really hang me up at all. Okay. You just can't handle it. That's correct. Lots of things I couldn't handle about this book. <laughs> all right. Well, this is probably a good time to do wrap ups. So why don't you go ahead and go first on the wrap ups? All right. So uh, I'll try and keep it quick. The book is really 
a lot of things. Um, like I said, the beginning is really slow, so you have to have a bit of patience and, and have a little faith that it'll get better, and, and it does. It gets to a point where it's, um, you know, it's moving along great, and then for some reason he makes these kind of choices to, to suddenly shift to the narrative perspective and, 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 and stuff like that, which, you know, while kind of disruptive, doesn't really take too much away. It's just something that anytime something comes up in a book that it makes me pause and consider it, I think that that's a failure of some degree, you know, in, in, in a book, because it should be, you should just be engrossed in what's going on. So to me, that was a bit of a failure. Um, that being said, the language and and the description and the world he built were all just fantastic. And there was a lot to be impressed by in this book. Um, Livius is right. The characters could have been a little bit more um, meaningful, I guess, or at least what their stories could have been a little more meaningful. There were opportunities that China had given himself that he just didn't take to make things more uh, deeper emotionally, like, you know, emotional connections between characters or just digging deeper into the things that were driving them. Um, So it's one of those books where if had I just set it down and not given a lot of thought, I'd have said, oh, you know, this is a good book. But the more we talk about it, the more we analyze what's going on and the more I talk about it with other people, the more those types of flaws come to the surface. And, and eh, it's probably not a good thing. Um, I'd, I'd consider it more of a beach read than something that you really want to dig too deeply into thinking about. And um, overall, in retrospect, I'd say I'd probably put this at a... Uh, Dramatic pause? Yeah, I'm fighting myself on this one. I'm going to put it at a two. Um, I think Rob summed pretty much everything I thought about it up. Um, it took a long time to get going. I will be honest if, um, you know, we made a commitment uh, to each other or whatever we did the show is that, you know, we're going to read this stuff and, and you got to get through the book. I mean, sometimes we may have to put an episode off for a couple of days because we're busy or it's just a tough book to get through. I mean, I think with the Pale King, we took a week off or, we, you know, I think it might have been our first interlude episode <laughs> just to finish the, that. The Pale King gave birth to our interlude episodes. Yeah. I, but, you know, we promised like if we start the book, we're going to finish the book and we're not going to review something based on, you know, reading 20 percent of it. Um, I would have put this book down within the first 12 to 13% and not picked it up again if this was a personal reading for me, non-podcast related reading. Um, It did get better uh, after 25% or so, but now you've committed. So the the listing on um, Amazon is 480 pages. So you've you've struggled through 100 pages. So that's got to be, you know, 90 minutes to two hours that you've been reading. So you struggle through that. You finally get the story and then you find the characters aren't interesting and you don't really care what happens to them. Um, There's some stuff Rob mentioned angels and there's heaven and angels. And I couldn't make heads or tails of any of that stuff throughout the whole book or why they were named as they were. I just didn't make any sense to me. So I think China had a beautifully, beautifully structured world that he created for, for, for this, for the setting. Um, I think his writing was fantastic. I don't want to bore you guys with a full page and a half or whatever, but there's a there's a segment where um, Sham is uh, drunk, and it's his, I think it's his, like one time he had some drinks with the guys, and this time he gets flat out drunk, and I think the description was perfect. I could I was there with him through that point um, and, and could understand exactly how he felt having drunk too much and being in this weird place and, and you know, where he wakes up and how he feels. So I thought the writing is is wonderful. 
Um, but I read for story, not for writing, as I'm thinking most people do. If you want to read for writing, there's probably great essays you could read, you know, that are written well about writing or about different things. Um, when I pick up a, a fiction book, I, I want a story, and that story just wasn't this book. Um, I'm going to also go with a two. Um, I really, really wanted to go with a one because I want to stress that I did not like this book. But um, because of the world that he created, it's something I won't forget. And I'm not saying that in a funny way. The rail sea is something that's going to stay with me that I'll think about in the future. Um, and because of the writing, I, I have to give it an extra star for that. But from a story standpoint, I really didn't like it. But it's, uh, it's going at two stars. All right. So we actually came up with something new. Um, that we're going to try out this time. Uh, and, and this was inspired by um, just kind of going into a little bit of a, of a deeper thought process on, on, so we rate a book and then based on what we say, sometimes people will or will not pick up a book. And, and so it can't be as easy as just one through five. Uh, we realize there's kind of another dimension to it. And so what we're going to try right now is, um, so we've done our rating. We both gave it a two we're going to do an I'd buy it for. And what, what basically that means is, you know, there are certain books that I think are, fan, are you know, good reads and everything. But if I had to pay 20 bucks to get it, I probably wouldn't have, you know, I probably wouldn't invest that type of money. Um, so the I'd buy it for is basically like what amount of money would I think is reasonable to pay for, you know, an ebook version of, of this book. All right, so you heard my review. Quite honestly, I wouldn't buy this book <laughs> given a choice to do it again. But um, certainly not the $12.99 that it, that it cost us on Amazon or, or whatever it was. Um, I would say that for the writing and for the, the, again, the grand scheme of things that he created, $2.99 be worth it. Okay, uh, that's fair. And, and so in thinking of this, this is definitely a new concept so it's, it's evolving even as we speak right now but so my thought process is um having read it and knowing what i feel about it um i really feel like i'd be comfortable like livia said the 2.99 price is good i'd even go uh, i wouldn't all right so i wouldn't regret having paid you know up to maybe 7.99 to read this book i guess um and then again that's hindsight which you won't ever have going into buying a book. So, you know, that's kind of why we do this, but you know, seven ninety nine, it's, it's a little bit lower than you pay for your usual, you know, brand new books that are released on, you know, one of the top five publishers or whatever. Usually it's nine ninety nine, twelve ninety nine, something like that. So, if, you know, for me, I don't think that I'd feel good having paid that amount of money reading this book. Uh, I'd say five ninety nine to seven ninety nine, somewhere in that range. It's probably something where, you know, the amount of, of pleasure I got out of it equals about that amount of money. Um, okay. So let me, let me throw a couple back at you. Um, some of our top rated books. Um, so, uh, I think the, yeah, our top rated standalone novel strangeness in the proportion, put a price on it. Easily a twelve ninety nine. I mean, it's available far cheaper than that. I think it's a five bucks, but I think I, I'd be happy having paid. I'd be, and that's the thing. Like I'd be happy having spent that amount of money, knowing that it, more of my money is going to someone who who created something I really enjoyed. I, I I have to like rethink my whole thought process on this because we pay so we paid on average nine ninety nine for you know ten ninety nine for a book for the show right. I mean we get a lot of stuff sent to us, but when we're buying like you said big five, that's what they cost. 
So I am paying them what I pay for some of these books on my own. I probably wouldn't have paid twelve ninety nine to read a China Mabel book on my own. But you know that being the case, yeah, I have to agree that you know at the top end of the spectrum for for something like that. And I, I would say I probably would ever pay more than fourteen ninety nine for an ebook because at, at a certain point, I mean, we actually boycotted Stephen King's last book. Well, not his last book, but his yeah, whatever the most recent non series book of his for having a sixteen ninety nine price tag. So. Um, yeah, I'm probably with you. Twelve ninety nine is hitting the higher reaches of what I would pay for personally for an ebook. Yeah, and again, this is just something that's completely in retrospect. Understanding how much we enjoyed it, this kind of like goes out to the people that listen too. Like, I don't want someone to spend thirteen bucks on a book because we gave it a three star rating and then be disappointed by it. So, you know, I'd feel bad. You know, I'd feel like I kind of made them spend money without informing them properly. That's why, you know, we kind of decided to do this to kind of try it out and see if that adds a better dimension of, of, of shopping, I guess, forethought. And, um, China needs to go on discount a little bit. Absolutely. All right. So here's something that, um, I had a little bit of extra time after finishing rail C and it's something that had been on my list for a while, but it fit in really, really perfectly. Um, so rail C, which now I'm officially going to be done talking about after this statement, um, this dystopian future, you know, everyone's on the rails and, you know, they're scavenging for things and whatever. So um, I got a chance to catch up um, because I felt like I'd fallen way behind. So the facility um, by Jandon Hale is a he refers to it as a sub chapter, which would be kind of like a novella, really short one. This first one is uh, the first in a series of, uh, of the Everwind series. So it's also very dystopian future. <laughs> the difference was I didn't despise this the whole time I was reading it. <laughs> but um, it'd been on my list of things to read, and it's short. And I'm trying to, to get, as I mentioned before, more short stuff in in between the, the books we do on the show, um, just for a way for me to read some non-podcast-related stuff. So I read The Facility, um, and one of the things that spurred me on to read is that the second subchapter came out recently. Uh, dystopian future. Um, very, very different, a lot less fantasy, probably a little more science fiction, um, but not science fiction. I'm not a big sci-fi fan. And the way that, uh, that Mr. Hale delivered this story is, uh, is, is really okay for people who aren't science fiction. I get the feeling that he's not a science fiction guy, but he's writing a science fiction story. So I think he kind of understands maybe uh, the, the desire for people who aren't into sci-fi to have it kept pretty simple. So basically, it's a dystopian future many, many, many years from now. And uh, the first uh, subchapter, which really reads um, more like a, a prologue, I guess, in a novel, is about a young lady who um, wakes up and she is at, uh, she's at the facility, which is a clinic um, where it appears they take women who are, um, who are pregnant and uh, you know, bring them to, uh, you know, to a birth you know, to their, their child's birth and then care for their child until uh, it's safe out in the world to let them go back out into the world together. So very quickly in this, you know, 26 pages or so, we find out that the facility is probably not what they what they claim to be and that basically it's kind of like a, a birthing factory. So I know it seems like I'm giving a lot away, but this is just one chapter in a, in a much bigger story. So um, I read that and I thought, you know, eh, this is okay. I'm not really sure that this is for me. And then I decided to, um, since I'd already purchased it, read Legion of Liberty, which is the second subchapter, which it seems is like where the story really gets going. Um, and this is about a kind of like a pseudo paramilitary group that is uh, 
trying to spread influence. They figured out that influence is power, not money, not knowledge, but actual influence. And what they're trying to do is spread the word to, to the masses um, that what the government is doing basically is wrong. So they're on the run from the government. They're this small, this small group of people. And I really, really like where this is going. So I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, you can pick up each of these for a buck on the Kindle. I mean, they're great uh, lunchtime reads. The second one's about 72 pages, so maybe a little more than you'd read on your lunchtime. But um, I've got to say that I'm very much looking forward to see where Jandon Hale is, is taking this. Um, didn't have any trouble figuring out what was going on. I actually cared about what happened to the characters, <laughs> all the things. And, and that's, oh, this is kind of I like see my, what you did there. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is my read, this, not that. But no, initially I was thinking like, hey, I've got some time to read this. And as I'm reading to it, I'm thinking, you know, because I just literally just closed Railsea minutes before opening this on my Kindle. And my first thought was, great, another dystopian future. Like, I didn't just get through one of these, you know. But the difference was that I actually, you know, immediately could figure out what was going on, or at least what the author wanted me to understand and struggle with it at all. And like I said, by the time I got into the second one, so roughly, you know, 25 minutes into my reading, um, really was interested to see where uh, where the Legion of Liberty, who I think is who we're going to follow through the course of this series, um, where they're where they're headed. One of the things that I really liked was he, um, he everyone's really poor and there's like drug use, but the drug use is forced onto you. So it's kind of like the uh, we've all heard that, you know, the dealers give it to you the first time and then you get hooked. There's a, a drug that nobody gets off of and they actually have drug dealers who they're not so much dealers as they go around and like try to inject you with this stuff. Because once you're in it, it doesn't matter if you want drugs or not. You don't have a choice. The physical effects are are just staggering so you go in and have to get this drug but one of the interesting things I, I thought about with this was we always you know we watch tv shows and whenever there's a poor neighborhood or there's like that abandoned building there's always trash strewn about everywhere and stuff and there's just like this line where they go into this abandoned building um, where there are some homeless people and he talks about how just very debris free it is because they've needed to use every single thing that you know, they've, they've needed to make a resource out of everything, including all the trash. So there isn't this litter around, which is, like I said, the kind of idea you get when you think abandoned building and whatever. And even to the point where uh, books have become uh, scarce, if not non-existent, because people have either eaten the paper or used it for kindling. All right. I feel like I'm the parent that has to drag a kid away from a video game. All right. All right. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Can I ask you something? Sure. Now these two these two stories, were they read on Liv's lunches? <laughs> yes, actually, most of the Legion of Liberty was yes. Liv's lunches for anybody who hasn't been listening is uh, Livius is always saying that um, short stories are are a perfect um, type of thing to read on your lunch break, and so he said it so often now that I've kind of just like got this thing in my mind where like the moment Livius is on lunch at his work. He's just reading a short story or two. So anytime he reads a short story, I imagine him, you know, with a sandwich sitting, out, you know, sitting outside a building, you know, flipping through the Kindle. That's yeah, that happened. That happened uh, today. That's when I finished Legion of Liberty was <laughs> on Liv's lunch today. So. Liv, <laughs> Liv's lunch. That needs to be a segment that we do every week. Now this week on Liv's lunch, I read a short story by so-and-so. All right. Uh, thanks, Livius, for the little mini review. That's like the time I talked about raw shark text. Remember that? Yes. And I just talked. I felt like I talked for a half hour straight. 
Yeah, it's it tough so too because you want to get these ideas out, but when you're so used to, and it's not like it's structured, we just fall into these little like thirty second switch offs, and then when you're talking for longer than that, it just it's weird. <laughs> All right, so to break it up a little bit, we're going to bring on uh, Skip Papersley with Episode 8 of Booked News. Here he is. This is Booked News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Booked News, the unfortunate death of author Ray Bradbury sent shockwaves through the blog and Twitter community. While we at Booked News mourn the loss of this great literary figure, we also believe he would have hated all the attention, especially on Twitter. Did anyone that tweeted about it even read Fahrenheit 451? For shame. In other news, hopeful presidential candidate Mitt Romney has released his summer reading list for young adults this year. New youngsters across the nation can read what Romney suggested. On his five-book list, it is The Book of Mormon three times, followed by The Wall Street Journal, and Everybody Poops. Now, the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. Deadlock by Charlene Harris is about to go dead at number five. The fourth spot is taken by Calico Joe by John Grisham. Again! Stolen Prey by John Sanford is praying to hang in there at number three. Jimmy Pat Pat's book, Eleventh Hour, stays at number two. And number one this week, The Storm by Clive Cussler, originally called Boat Go Boom Boom. That's all for book news. This is Skip Papersley signing off. Oh, that's Skip. <laughs> uh, he really brings it. You know, it's it's odd because I like so Skip emails these over to Rob, and then Rob forwards them to me, and it's honestly I'm not kidding. It's probably the email I'm most excited about. I always like even if I'm like at work, I have to sneak off somewhere where I can download it and listen to that you know minute or whatever it is. Um. So yeah, I, I very like nothing good ever comes in email. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> I mean, once in a while, once in a while, we get a book sent to us. Other than that, there's nothing in the email that's really of any interest. I even have um, friends that I send it to the moment I get it. Like they're getting a special sneak preview of of booked news just because I think it's so hilarious and I want to share it with someone right away. So, hey, maybe we could start an email list for people who want to get booked news as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's pressed. Sure. Yeah. 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 No. Hey, hit us up on Facebook. Hey, do me a favor. Don't send us messages on Facebook to the booked account because we don't get any type of notification. <laughs> and apparently days go by that we don't see stuff that's in there. So email us. You want to give them the email? Email us at bookedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, it's way easier than us just remembering to look for messages. <laughs> it's terrible. There really is no good way to, to get that unless you go in physically every day and check. So. Yeah, there's no notification like it would pop up for uh, a personal account. So... We really have to just be like Hawkeye enough to, to look up there and see that there's the, 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 the picture of the person who sent me a message most recently has changed to someone else. So it's really cumbersome. So speaking of cumbersome, um, our next book review. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, <Sorry>. brilliant. <laughs> um, a long, long time ago, sometime last year, we reviewed Robopocalypse. I think we, we came to an agreement on two stars, right? about braille c rating two stars is that what we gave it yeah in that yes i think you're right okay so that was uh that was daniel wilson daniel h wilson so he's not confused with the other daniel wilson apparently um his uh his debut novel um we kind of reviewed it we thought it was kind of a ripoff of world war z with um with uh, robots instead of zombies and we didn't like it very much so the other day, I'm looking through the what's uh, new this month, trying to put you know put together some ideas for for shows for us, and I see that Daniel H. Wilson has another book out. 
This one is called Amped, and uh, we decided to give Daniel H. Wilson a chance to redeem himself. That's right. We're giving Daniel another shot. So next week we'll be telling you if uh, if he actually maybe here here's my thought. Maybe he listened to our show and took our thoughts to heart and um and and you know tried harder. So we're giving him a shot. We want to see if he's uh, evolved as a novelist. Yep. Are we holding our breath on that one? So. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I guess you do what, what you do what you know. Um, this one takes place in the uh, frightening near future world. Does that sound at all familiar? Hmm. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. I think that wraps it up for this 91st episode of Booked. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Thank you.